As I'm getting set up here this morning to to wrap up Colossians, um, we have this is another week where we're going to have a lot of scripture, a lot of text to read. Uh, if you normally use an app, you might find bouncing back and forth a little be a little frustrating. Um, so if you don't have a, a paper Bible with you, we have plenty on the back table back there. If you want to go ahead and grab one, I think Chris is going to grab some if you if you need one. Um, we're we're actually going to read two. <laughs> we're actually going to read two whole chapters of scripture today, but it's okay; they're short chapters. Thank you, Chris. Um, so if you want to, <laughs> so if you want to turn to the book of Colossians, we are wrapping up. Our sermon series today, going through the this letter that Paul wrote to the new church in Colossae, these this blooming fellowship of believers. I'll give you guys a minute to find so. And we're the la- in the last chapter, Colossians four is where we're going to be. I'm going to go through a couple and. Uh, I think Amy is the unfortunate one that has the words today, right? So um, just a heads up that I've got like, read, I'm going to read the, all the first four or five first, and then we're going to cycle back up to go through them chunk by chunk because I just couldn't be bothered to put that many slides in planting, in planning center this week. Alrighty, so um, I came across this, uh, this, this was actually a, um, the next slide was actually a, a, a tweet or something, whatever they call that, that, that platform now x or something weird um that was (laughs) shared this week um and i I thought it was funny and and relevant that but i had to retype it because it was so blurry you couldn't read it but general epistle outline like you know epistles being letters um that's what that word means Uh, and if you think of paul's letters this is pretty fitting and how they all go uh grace yep i thank god whenever i remember you hold fast to the gospel for the love of everything holy stop being stupid (laughs) And then Timothy says hi. <laughs> um, ironically, in this letter, this is one of the letters where Timothy doesn't say hi. <laughs> Everybody else says hi, and we'll get to that in a second. But, um, but that's, that part is where we have come to uh, in our study of the book of Colossians. That Timothy says hi. My, I, I apologize. I am wearing horrible shoes this morning, and I had to take them off, and they're giving me foot cramps. So if I just kind of have a moment, that's what's going on. Um, so we're at the Timothy says hi portion of this letter. Uh, if you have made it to Colossians 4, we are just going to start by reading this whole chapter together, and then we're going to cycle back up and go through it chunk by chunk uh, and break it down. Uh, so let's, here we go. Chapter 4, verse 1. Masters, provide your slaves with what is right and fair, because you know that you also have a master in heaven. Devote yourselves to prayer, being watchful and thankful, and pray for us too, that God may open a door for our message, so that we may proclaim the mystery of Christ for which I am in chains. Pray that I may proclaim it clearly, as I should. Be wise in the way you act towards others. Make the most of every opportunity. Let your conversation always be full of grace, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer everyone. Tychius will tell you all the news about me. He is a dear brother, a faithful minister, and fellow servant in the Lord. 
I am sending him to you for the express purpose that you may know about our circumstances and that he may encourage your hearts. He is coming with Onesimus, our faithful and dear brother, who is one of you. They will tell you everything that is happening here. My fellow prisoner, Aristarchus, sends you his greetings, as does Mark, the cousin of Barnabas. You have received instructions about him, and if he comes to you, welcome him. Jesus, who is called Justice, also sends greetings. These are the only Jews among my fellow workers for the kingdom of God, and they have proved a comfort to me. Epaphras, who is one of you and a servant of Christ Jesus, sends greetings. He is always wrestling in prayer for you, that you may stand firm in all the will of God, mature and fully assured. I vouch for him that he is working hard for you and for those at Laodicea and Hierapolis. Our dear friend Luke, the doctor, and Demas send greetings. Give my greetings to the brothers at Laodicea and to Nympha and the church in her house. After this letter has been read to you, see that it is also read in the church of the Laodiceans and that you in turn read the letter from Laodicea. Tell Archippus, see to it that you complete the work you have received in the Lord. I, Paul, write this greeting in my own hand. Remember my chains. Grace be with you. He put grace at the end in that one, not at the beginning like the others, but you know it's in there. Different, different order. So just as a reminder, this letter was written by Paul. This is one of the prison letters that he wrote while he was in prison for sharing the gospel. Um, scholars argue about where he probably was, but uh, he's, he's, he's most likely in Ephesus at this time, um, which is, and we, we know that because of uh, these guys from these churches in Colossae and Laodicea being able to actually get to him. It's a lot closer than if he was in Rome, but, you know, we don't really know for sure. Um, so he's writing this letter to a church that he's never visited, never seen, but knows about because of the folks from that church who have come to visit him and help him. The church was actually actually planted by this guy, Epaphras, which he mentions in this letter. Um, he's gone through and given them all sorts of great instructions, some really hard teaching, and now he's closing it out with all these final greetings and everything. And at first glance, you know, it might seem that this is just kind of a typical letter closing there, there's not a lot of like theology going on here you know not a whole lot of instruction no lot not a whole lot of that kind of stuff that was in the previous chapters of the letter but there's actually some really significant bits here that I want us to dig into um, so we're going to go back up to that first slide and we're going to go through this chunk by chunk um, I'm going to have the NIV up here but I'm actually going to read to you from a different translation I just think it's really good and healthy that we because um, here's the thing there's so many translations and they all do their best effort and I think we we gain something because um, words are tricky right language is tricky and no one translation has it all right and so we're going to look at a couple and just see what the Holy Spirit points out to us or says or does just to get a more complete picture of what's going on here. So I'll have NIV on the screen, but I'm going to read to you from something different and you can follow along in your Bibles there. Okay, so the very first verse um, says in this version, employers treat your workers with equality and justice as you know that you also have a lord and master in heaven who is watching you um, the niv puts that as you know a master slave dynamic and that is indeed a lot of what paul was addressing in this letter um, but 
to remember that though slavery um, wasn't quite the same as what we think about it in the U.S., like in that pre-Civil War time, as Josh mentioned last week, it was still a big problem. It was still a big deal, and slaves did not have their full freedom. And this is something that comes up a lot in this letter. And we're actually going to cycle back to this in just a few um, verses here. But just as a reminder that when Paul... says this, this is not an ethical statement on his view of slavery. He's not saying that he like condones this or anything, but again, that he is trying to address something that a broken system that has completely fueled the Roman Empire that they are living under. And so we're going to come back to that in a few minutes in a couple of verses. So let's reread verses two through six together. Be faithful to pray as intercessors who are fully alert and giving thanks to God. And please pray for me that God will open a door of opportunity for us to preach the revelation of the mystery of Christ, for whose sake I am imprisoned. Pray that I would unfold and reveal fully this mystery, for that is my delightful assignment. Walk in the wisdom of God as you live before the unbelievers, and make it your duty to make him known. Let every word you speak be drenched with grace and tempered with truth and clarity, for then you will be prepared to give a respectful answer to anyone who asks about your faith. So right off the bat here, notice that in this infant church, brand new, new believers, like nobody had really been a believer all that long, right? Because this is still um, very early on. Churches are just being planted, but this church in particular was especially new. Um, Folks are brand new Christians, totally green when it comes to this whole following Jesus thing. But Paul wastes absolutely no time telling them and infusing in them the value of prayer in following Jesus. And not only the value of prayer, but the value of like prayer-powered evangelism in their fellowship, that this is to be a priority among them. And not only that, so he asked them to pray for him, which is very significant, because here is this significant, um, powerful, experienced apostle, but he's saying, hey, guys, I need the power of prayer that you have to do what I'm going to do. And so don't stop praying for me. And he's telling him them that, you know, he needs them. He said he exhorts them and says, "Don't take any of this for granted." You know, take every opportunity to be salty, not in the Gen Z kind of salty way, but in the salt of the earth kind of way, right? And to use their words well to answer anyone that has any sort of question about their faith or why they live and do and believe the way that they do. And he says, be ready. He wants them to be ready to defend their faith and talk about this in a really grounded kind of way. That version that I just read, um, it's actually called the Passion Translation, uh, it translates verse, verse five as this. Make it your duty to make him known, to make Jesus known. Like, make that your mission that others would know Jesus. Another way of translating this that was actually from that language would be like, sell your last crust of bread. That was an idiom in that culture that, was, that just meant like, go all in on this. Give the very last piece of sustenance and thing you have and devote it to this cause. It would be like us saying, push all your chips in on this one. Everything you've got, everything you're holding in reserve, everything you're banking on, put it all towards this. That's how important it is. 
And so he's teaching them that prayer and evangelism aren't reserved for like just the apostles or the, you know, the disciples or these people from Jerusalem or whatever. He's saying this is for everyone. Everyone who claims Jesus and follows him, prayer and evangelism has got to be a central part of living out our faith. Everyone, oh, I forgot to wear my everyone gets to play shirt today. Everyone gets to play, right? That's our value in the vineyard. Everyone gets a piece of this. And everyone needs to be doing this as if it's our duty to make it our duty. So there's no bench in the kingdom. You know, if you're, even if you're a rookie, even if you're new, you're in the game. You're not sitting the bench. So get out on the field, give it your best. You're a starter and spare absolutely nothing to see that this is a part of your discipleship and following Jesus. And the key to all of it is prayer. You can't do this on your own power. Prayer is critical not only in every phase of our discipleship, but in the life of the church too. What we do in here before the service, you know, pre-service prayer, it's critical to what happens in this service. Prayer is critical to the outreaches we do. It's critical to the mission. It's critical to serving our community. It's critical to teaching our children about Jesus and giving them the gospel. So it's absolutely critical. There's a theologian that says, he, he's a guy that travels around a whole lot, like preaching all over the Western world, um, New Testament theologian, written lots of books, written his own version of the New Testament. And he said something that I read this week that was very interesting. He said, when he goes into a service, like wherever he's preaching, whether it's like a church or you know some university that's invited him to come speak, he said he can get up there and he can actually sense if that congregation has been praying that he would preach the truth to them and that they would receive it with open hearts. Isn't that really interesting? I'll look around at you guys for a minute. Y'all been praying that? But he says he can sense it. He can sense whether this gathering is prayer prepared or not. It matters even in our week to week that we are praying for these things. I've been having some um, conversations lately just over the past few months in different regional and area gatherings and things like that um, with other pastors and church leaders about what I would say is a bit of discouragement that I feel and concern over what seems to be um, like a fading passion for evangelism. You guys see that, sense that, concern for that? Just a fading passion for sharing the gospel with the lost, for seeing people who don't know Jesus introduced to him and invited to his table, invited into his kingdom to receive his grace and forgiveness. It seems it's not just me, as I've been talking to others. Um, I, I'm, we're just concerned that like American Christians in a large part, or maybe just more so than previously, have just sort of lost their sense of calling as followers of Jesus to do that. And how essential that that's meant to be. And uh, honestly, I don't know what the answer is. I don't even know what all the cause of the problem is. You know, COVID didn't help. Like the individuality American thing doesn't help. Fear of man doesn't help. So I'm not really sure exactly what the cause is. And I'm not really sure exactly what the answer is. But what I do know is that prayer is key. 
praying for the lost is key. Praying for us to have boldness to share is key. Praying for others to have open, soft hearts to receive the gospel is key. All of this is key to doing what we're actually meant to do as a church. Because, you know, we're not just meant to meet in here. We're meant to meet in here to go out and take what is in here out. Um, and so that's concerning to me that it seems to to have faded. And, and you know, for praying for the gospel to advance and praying for workers for the harvest, as Jesus says, and, and praying for all of those things in a loving and grace-filled way is essential to being effective in evangelism. And if we're not, then something has probably gone wrong ahead of time, not just in our efforts. And just, you know, honest questions, like as we assess our own discipleship and our own faith and our own walk, is like, when is the last time that you earnestly prayed for the lost to know Jesus? When's the last time that a friend at school or a coworker or a neighbor, you just saw their life was just going the whole wrong direction and you actually brought them by name in prayer to Jesus and said, Lord, use me. Use me to reach them. Get rid of my fear of man. Get rid of my fear of looking stupid. Get rid of my own fear of rejection to love them unconditionally and offer Jesus what you have given me. When's the last time we did that? Or how about um, praying for our missionary friends in Tajikistan, Dan and Jen? Because they're out there in a very antagonistic culture that is not a Christian culture like the Bible Belt South is, proclaiming Jesus to a completely other culture. Are we praying for their effectiveness? Are we praying, like Paul says, for doors to be opened to that message? Are we praying for our sister churches in Russia who are battling an oppressive government who wants to lock them down from doing any of this and wants everything to be controlled by the state? Are we praying that our own local church here would be effective when we go out to hand out turkeys and like bags of stuffing? Are we praying that as we hand those people food, that what we actually get to give them is the love of Jesus and that their life is impacted not by a fuller fridge, but by the love of Christ coming in and showing them there's a better way and I have it for you and this is why we do this. Are we praying for that to happen? Are we expecting those things to happen? And here's the deal, guys. If you're not, don't feel shame in this moment. Feel a passion stirred. Feel a flame fanned into a fire to do this. Say yes to a renewed call to embrace this part of our faith that I think we've let languish a bit. Embrace the conviction to actually get out there and do this stuff. And start somewhere. Like we said, sign up. Go to your neighbor. Do something. Prayer paves the way for the mission of the church. When uh, years ago, when uh, before we even felt the call to plant a church, Josh wanted to be a missionary to Russia. Many of you know this story. And he had this thing from God uh, where he said he heard God say, "Your church, the church that you lead, will be called a house of prayer." This was so key for us in getting married and doing what we do and planting this church. We actually have a, a little ornament on our Christmas tree that his mom made for us. It's like a little church house. And she like scratched out whatever the number was above the door and put in house of prayer. Like as a reminder year to year that this is who God has called us to be. Before we even had Holly Springs in mind or Holly Springs Vineyard or planted a church or any of your faces, God said, my house will be a house of prayer. And I think we have room to grow in that and to dig in. Okay. 
verses 7 through 9, back in Colossians 4. Tychius will tell you about what is happening with me. I have sent him to you so that he could find out how you were doing in your journey of faith and bring comfort and encouragement to your hearts. For he is a beloved brother in Christ, a faithful servant of the gospel, and my ministry partner in our master Yahweh's work. I have also sent Onesimus, who is from your city, and he is also a beloved and faithful brother who will inform you of all that we're enduring. Uh, now, I know I spent time on the first chunk, so to say, that we're going to spend some time here doesn't mean a whole lot, but we're going to spend some time here. Because at first glance, these verses might seem really inconsequential. inconsequential. Hey, there's these two guys, they're coming to you, they're good brothers, you know. Seems easy to move on. But actually, there's a whole lot of backstory here. There's a whole lot going on behind the scenes. And if we miss it, we miss a huge part of what this whole letter is actually about. It's actually quite central to the letter, particularly the last chapter that Josh talked about last week um, during our outdoor service. If you were here for that, when we met outside last week for that in our um, chili cook-off, Josh tackled some pretty challenging stuff in chapter three. Some, some things about slavery and submission that all make us squirm a little bit and make us a little bit uncomfortable. But I think he did a pretty darn good job of it, hopefully. Um, you do as well. Um, but all that stuff kind of wraps in this little verse, and I'm going to show you how. So in chapter three, Paul, you know, addresses the slavery, the submission, all that stuff in some pretty broad sweeping generic terms. Do this, you know, treat people this way, that kind of thing. It's like a whole community-based approach. But here, in these two verses, it gets really personal, actually. Tychius is a ministry companion of Paul's. He's been on a number of journeys with him. He's delivered a number of letters for Paul. Um, this is a guy that's been with him a lot, traveled around with him. He's going to be the bearer of this letter. He's going to take this letter from Paul to Colossae. Um, others would probably be familiar with him. You know, so it's really no surprise that Tychius is mentioned. Like he's one of Paul's kind of right-hand guys, kind of like Timothy, doing a lot of work for Paul and supporting Paul. But this other guy, Onesimus, is a whole different story. And you need to know why. So the folks in the Colossian church would probably have known who this Onesimus guy was, but for very different reasons than why that they would know Tychius. And I don't think we can fully grasp what's going on in just these two little verses about Paul saying, hey, I'm just sending these two guys to you, uh, without actually reading a companion letter to this one. So Paul wrote a letter to Philemon. And it's a tiny little thing. It's not very long. We're going to read it together. It's only 25 verses if you want to go ahead and find it. But Paul wrote the letter, which became our book of Philemon and our scripture, um, the same time as he wrote this letter to the Colossians. Same exact time. It's going to the Colossians at the same time. It's traveling with the same guys. It's just two different correspondents, but they matter and they're complementary. It's very short, but it's high impact. Philemon was a Colossian. He lived in Colossae, but he had clearly encountered Paul, probably in Ephesus when he was there. He heard Paul's preaching, and he became a believer through Paul's preaching. And he was probably a pretty wealthy guy because the church in Colossae actually met in his house. So his house was big enough to do this. 
And so Philemon is this prominent person in this church. And it probably wasn't a huge church, but he's a leader. And in this letter that Paul writes to him, we have an interesting discovery. Philemon has slaves. And that's a little problematic because Philemon is now a church leader. He's been saved. And yet there's this dynamic that does not align with the kingdom of God. Not only that, this guy Onesimus was one of Philemon's slaves. And what happened was he had run away, most likely taking some of Philemon's wealth with him by stealing it when he left. And so all we know is that somehow Onesimus has ended up with Paul. He's with Paul. Maybe he went down to appeal to Paul for help, realizing he's in a lot of trouble if he gets caught. And so this letter to Philemon that Paul wrote concurrent with Colossians is going to give us a lot of insight into the things that Paul said to the whole church in chapter 3, in the last chapter. So let's read the whole thing together. I'm actually going to read it from the screen to make sure I'm reading the same thing, same version as you guys. So 25 verses of the letter to Philemon. Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother. Oh, there's Timothy again. He is there. He showed up. I don't know why he didn't say hi to the whole church. Maybe he's upset. To Philemon, our dear friend and fellow worker, and also to Aphia, our sister, and Archippus, our fellow soldier, and to the church that meets in your home. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I always thank my God as I remember you in my prayers because I hear about your love for all of his holy people and your faith in the Lord Jesus. I pray that your partnership with us in the faith may be effective in deepening your understanding of every good thing we share for the sake of Christ. Your love has given me great joy and encouragement because you, brother, have refreshed the hearts of the people. So Paul's like really buttered Philemon up, right? Like, hey, listen, I love you. I miss you. Like we're partners together. We're doing this thing together. Oh, but now watch. Therefore, although in Christ, I could be bold and order you to do what you ought to do. Yet I prefer to appeal to you on the basis of love. It is as none other than Paul, an old man, and now also a prisoner of Christ Jesus, that I appeal to you for my son, Onesimus. Well, isn't that interesting? Who became my son while I was in chains. Formerly, he was useless to you, but now he has become useful both to you and to me. I am sending him who is my very heart back to you. I would have liked to keep him with me so that he could take your place in helping me, mm, oops, while I am in chains for the gospel. But I did not want to do anything without your consent. This is that submission subversion thing Josh was talking about last week. So that any favor you do would not seem forced, but would be voluntary. In other words, don't do it because you have to, do it because you want to. Perhaps the reason he was separated from you for a little while was that you might have him back forever, no longer as a slave, but better than a slave, as a dear brother. He is very dear to me, but even dearer to you, both as a fellow man and as a brother in the Lord. So if you consider me a partner, welcome him as you would welcome me. Watch this. 
if he has done you any wrong or owes you anything, charge it to me. Got the next one. Is there not one after that? That is the next one right there. Oh, sorry. It's the same thing, though. Sorry. Oh, interesting. Okay. There we go. My bad. I, Paul, am writing this with my own hand. I w He's saying, this is me. This is my signature. This is my stamp of promise. I will pay it back, not to mention that you owe me your very self. <laughs> yeah. He's like, you're getting away cheap. I do wish, brother, that I may have some benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. Confident of your obedience, I write to you, knowing that you will do even more than I ask. And one more thing. Prepare a room for me, because I hope to be restored to you in answer to your prayers. Hey, do this. By the way, I'm coming to check. <laughs> Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, sends you greetings. And so do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke, my fellow workers. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Sorry about that duplicate slide. That's a lot. So we learn that Philemon's runaway slave who was stolen from Philemon has been hanging out with Paul. He's become a believer in Jesus. He's become an assistant to Paul. He's now being sent back with Tychius as a bearer of Paul's letter to the Colossians and everything has changed. And Paul's relationship with this guy is such that he says, he's my very heart. He's my son. But so is Philemon. He's his partner, Paul says. He's his partner in the gospel. But we have this broken relationship between Onesimus and Philemon, and Paul has to deal with it as one of the leaders and as this apostle, and he has this complex situation in front of him wherein there's a slave who was, you know, according to that system and that culture, the Roman Empire, the way it ran, was rightly, you know, under this guy, under his master, but now the master is a church leader and a co-laborer for the gospel with Paul, and it's so complicated, and Paul has to help them work this out. And I just thought, isn't it so comforting to know that church was really complicated back then too, right at the very beginning, that there was stuff to deal with this, not just today. There was complicated stuff going on. And so Paul sends not only the public letter back to the whole church, but this private letter back to Philemon he gives thanks for him. He reminds him of their relationship. He reminds him of this deep partnership they have in the sake of the gospel. And then he appeals to him to receive his former slave who wronged him. Thus, Philemon would very much have a right to punish him if he came back. But he tells him, don't receive him back that way. Not as a slave, but as a brother, as an equal, as one in Christ and a partner as we are. And do it genuinely with the same enthusiasm and love that you would do it as if you would if I was the one coming back, as if Paul was the one returning. And then Paul does this really cool thing here. So Onesimus' name actually means useful. Now, whether or not that had to do with him being a slave and like work or that kind of thing, we don't know. But Paul says that when he was a slave, despite the meaning of his name, he actually was of no use to you. It doesn't matter how much labor he gave you or what he did for you, that relationship was useless to you, Philemon. But now, received as a brother instead of a slave, he's not only useful to you, he's valuable to both of us. 
And this matters so much to Paul that he puts himself in the reconciling place between Paul and, uh, excuse me, Philemon and Onesimus to say, listen, I get he stole from you. Whatever he owes you, whatever he took from you, you charge it to me and I'm going to pay it on his behalf. Paul is going to cancel Onesimus's debt to Philemon so that the two can be reconciled and their relationship completely changed. Now, does that sound like anything else that we know in our faith? How beautiful is that? Paul says, I'm going to be the peacemaker. I'm going to cancel his debt. That's how important this is to Paul. And it's absolutely beautiful to me how Paul applies the cross here without even saying it. He lives it. He says, I'm going to cancel the debt. And he shows us a picture of the cross and what Jesus did without even saying Jesus or the cross. He's demonstrating our own commission to be reconcilers and peacemakers in this world. Where do we need to actively take up that call? In our community, in our church, in the communities, in the places that God has put us. Because that's who he's made us to be. So there's something really important to understand here. I think Paul, uh, Josh kind of pointed this out uh, last time too. But the thing that Paul is asking of Philemon and Onesimus is just absolutely unheard of in this culture. Like, you don't do this. Like, you don't just, like, promote slaves. Like, you don't just cancel debts. Like, you don't overlook the fact that someone stole from you. Like, the entire Roman culture hinges on this system. It's what built it. And, and I know Josh mentioned this, that if it were to cease to be in a day, Rome would have collapsed right then. It's just what kept it going. So, this was unheard of. And so, this is a real big ask on Paul's part to these guys. So remember uh, last week, too, how Josh talked about Paul's instruction on submission not being a comment on the ethics of slavery. It was more of how to live as a Christian in a broken system, the value of Christ-likeness in broken culture and, and just fallen culture. And we can see that so much more clearly when we go back and we read chapter 3 in light of this letter, if you want to do that later. But Paul is clearly saying to Philemon, that receiving Onesimus back with forgiveness, not with retribution or punishment, not as a slave or a subordinate, excuse me, but as an equal partner in the gospel is what is right. He is making an ethical statement on slavery here. He says, this is what is right. This is what you should do. And so in this letter, he handles this question of slavery and submission on a personal level, not just a community church level. But I want you to notice that in chapter 4, verse 9, going back to that Colossians letter, he's writing to the whole church and he commends Onesimus back to the entire community as a brother and fellow worker. So he doesn't just want them reconciled individually, he wants Onesimus reconciled in community. He wants the whole community to change their way of thinking about this. He says he's a faithful and beloved brother who is one of you. He belongs. Not only that, he has important information for you. And so he's saying not just to Philemon, but to the whole community, you need him. He is that play on words on the planet's name. He is useful to you. You need him. And not just for the reasons that you used to. 
So not as a runaway slave, not in submission, but as an equal, both privately and in community. And I just think that's beautiful. It's amazing what the gospel of reconciliation can do. It's Galatians 3.28 in practice. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And Paul is coaching this individual and this entire church to live that way, to look that way, to act that way in their very specific real-time rubber-meets-the-road context where this was totally countercultural and hard to do. And he's saying, do it anyway. Be Christ-like. Approach this broken system, this complicated, messy circumstance with kingdom values and show the world who Jesus is. Proclaim the gospel through this. Because, guys, cultural and societal change starts in the heart of an individual to be reconciled with one another. So these expectations are huge. But what's happening here is the gospel in full with all the grit and all the teeth that it has that I think we sometimes forget. It's not just about reconciling two people. It's about reconciling all of creation back together and to him. It's not one or the other. Because this is about more than just, hey, you know, Onesimus is a Christian now, accept him back as an equal. This is about the kingdom coming in this particular church, in this particular culture built on brokenness, and the rule and reign of God coming and confronting very real problems and very real decisions in the lives of actual real people that make an actual real difference, not just like theologically or hypothetically. And it changes a broken system. It changes a broken world. It starts with a person saying, yes, Lord, I will do things your way, not the way of the world I live in. And so, guys, this type of reconciliation and justice right here, this type of reconciliation, this is what's innate in the gospel. This is infused in the gospel itself. The power of the gospel of this good news that Jesus is the master, that there's no other masters like him. He's the master and we're all leveled on the same field underneath him. This goes like way beyond the salvation of one individual, doesn't it? This goes to the transformation of communities. Completely unleashed, this message has meteoric impact on communities, on individuals, on churches, and potentially on entire social structures that for freedom he set us free. And that goes deep. And real people begin to be reconciled through grace, not only to Jesus, but to each other, to be his collective bride. It's a culture-shifting impact when we let the gospel loose and let it do its thing, to see the reconciliation of all things. By the way, that phrase comes from this book. Uh, If you look back um, in chapter 1, verse 20, Paul says, and through him to reconcile all things to himself, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. But the key is that justice is rooted in the gospel. And any attempts to produce the same effect through any other means, whether it be shame or coercion, Paul says, I don't want you to do it because I tell you to, I want you to do it because you want to, you know, any, any other impetus that we put behind this that's not the Holy Spirit, Jesus' rule and reign and his kingdom over a certain people, like it's just kind of social engineering and manipulation. We need hearts of people to change, and they change through the gospel of Jesus. 
He's not going to order Philemon to do what's right. He's saying, you do it because what's in your heart. So make your heart change. All right. That's the basis he's appealing to them on. And then they are built up into the full measure and stature of the, the fullness of Christ. All right. I'll stop there on that one. I told you we were going to spend a lot of time on that one. The rest of these will go quicker. All right. Verses uh, 10 through 15. I hope you see how significant that is. That these two verses, this little bit where Paul says, hey, I'm sending you the, these two guys to you, is actually an enormous thing going on behind the scenes. Okay, verses 10 through 15. Aristarchus, a fellow prisoner here with me, sends you his love, and Joshua, which is also called Justice, along with Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, also send you their loving greetings. You have, <clears throat> you have already been informed that if Mark comes to you, receive him warmly. I'm not sure what was going on there, but clearly he's dealing with something else. There was that whole thing, you know, where Barnabas left him and Mark's like, hey, he's my cousin. So who knows? Maybe that's also part of reconciliation. But these three men are the only ones of the circumcision who have aided me here in the work of the kingdom of God, and they have been a great blessing to me. Epaphras, who is also from Colossae, sends his loving greetings. Remember, that was their, their founder, the one who planted this church. I can tell you that he is a true servant of Christ who always labors and intercedes for you. His prayers are filled with requests to God that you would grow and mature, standing complete and perfect in the beauty of God's plan for your lives. Epaphras has such great zeal and passion for you and for those who are from Laodicea and Hierapolis. And these are just right down the road. And Luke, being the beloved physician, sends his warm greetings to you and Demas also. Give my greetings to all the believers in Laodicea, Laodicea and pray for dear Nymphus, Nym Nymphus and the church that gathers in her home. So here's all those ending salutations. He's made his points. He's done the theology. He has um, appealed to them on every basis he can, and he is actually closing up the letter. Um, like I said, we don't really know what was going on with the thing with Mark, but it seems, again, he is just trying to get ahead of this and just everyone to be welcomed and loved and reconciled to each other. He mentions Epaphras, who's the guy who planted the church, that he is now hanging out with Paul, ministering to him under house arrest. Um, back then, you know, the, the house arrest, you did, like Roman soldiers didn't come and bring you lunch kind of thing. You had to be served by those who knew you and loved you, and that's what these guys are doing. Um, and that's how Paul has come to hear about this church, because this guy's come back to meet with him, and that's how Paul is learning about what's going on there. And again, he highlights, um, you know, the importance of this church leader, that even going back from the leaders, servants, anyone in the church, those who minister, um, the, the, the key is prayer. And he highlights that by saying, your leader is praying for you. The guy who planted your church, the guy who's one of you, who lives there, you know, like he, he's with me, but you need to know he's still interceding for you all the time. And you need to be doing the same thing. He's wrestling for you um, and he is praying for your maturity and your effectiveness while he's away. Um, and then the last thing I'll just point out here, you can do what you want with this. Paul calls out a female church leader as a leader in the church that her house meets. Now, I know if you're sitting in this church, you probably don't have as much problem with that, um, but some do. And there's plenty of space in Paul's letters that show he, he uh, gave women leadership positions as well. All right, uh, last bit, verses 16 through 18, and we will wrap this up. Once you've read this letter publicly to the church, please send it on to the church of the Laodiceans and make sure you read the letter that I wrote to them. Be sure you give Archippus this message. 
Be faithful to complete the ministry you received from our Lord Jesus. Now, finally, I, Paul, write this with my own handwriting, and I send my loving greetings to you. Remember me in my imprisonment. May the blessings of God's grace overwhelm you. Um, so that, that letter to Laodicea that he mentions, is a, it's an interesting thing. It might have actually been what we call the book of Ephesians. Because um, as you see him talking here, it may not be, it could be a letter written directly to the Laodiceans that just we've lost, which is just a wild thing to think about, right? Like there's letters that we don't have that Paul wrote. Gosh, I wonder what he told them. Probably similar stuff. Grace, stop doing stupid stuff. Timothy said, hi. Um, but it's, it's, it's hilarious. It's there if you look at it. Um, but in all likelihood, it could have been the letter he wrote to the Ephesians and intended for it to circulate, like he says here, you know, get the letter from them, you give this one to them. And so we can see that that was his intention, that when he's writing these letters, he's very mindful of all the believers in the area. And he knew that other churches like Laodicea and Heropolis that were, you know, like nine, 10 miles down the road, they were probably experiencing very similar cultural issues that Colossae was. And he's like, I want them to read this too. I want them to get this too, because I want this to be a wise widespread thing. And so we can just see how the intention is for them to share these and read these things. Um, this Archippus guy was actually probably Philemon's son, uh, maybe in his 20s. You know, we don't know what this ministry was that he'd been given or if, like he went with his dad when he met Paul, but he's reminding him, listen, you've been given a task, like don't, don't, fall down on it, don't be discouraged in it, see it through to the end. And then he concludes with a personal signature in his own hand. And this is significant because often you would have a scribe that wrote these for you. Maybe they were just being dictated. Um, Tychius might've been the one for this letter. You know, there's other letters where he says like who his scribe was. Um, but he says, this matters so much to me. I'm writing this bit right here, this signature. I'm signing off on this with my own hand because I want you to know that you were this important to me and that I personally, I'm saying these things to you. Um, and so he, he give us, gives them the plea that they remember him in his hardship, that they pray and to bless them in the grace of God. And that's Colossians. I feel like I ended that like the Bible project would. And that is the book of Colossians. Um, there's a lot in there. Short, short books, lots of depth. But as I was... Um, going through this, I know that this is a very different kind of sermon than many of the others we do. It's not topical. It's going through and breaking down, you know, a book. But I, I still think in there, there is such a call for us. Could Paul have even imagined how many would read his letters? But we know that God was behind that, right? We know that the words that we have in our canon of scripture pass down the same impact to us that these first Christians had. And the importance of evangelism, of prayer, of reconciliation is still so key. So that's what I have for our ministry direction today. If there's someone that you need to be reconciled with, if there's someone that you need to stand in the place of being the reconciler and the peacemaker and say, count it to me, I'm going to be the one to own this. We want to pray for you. If you want a renewed passion to share the gospel and see others saved. Guys, I want our baptism trough out every week. Like, I just do. Like, it's a lot of work, but it's worth it. I want to see people saying yes to Jesus and coming to the faith. You know how many people are in this town? There were probably over 40,000 by now. 
You know how many churches are in this town? Not enough. Probably over 40,000. <laughs> people do tend to plant and growing. But really, if the gospel was spreading in our community like we hope for it to, like I think Paul instructed for us to, to go for, we don't have enough churches. I want to see that. I want to see churches, every one of them packed out, standing room only. Because we, as a community of believers in Jesus, are partnering together to reach our community with the good news that Jesus is King. And if you've just lost sight of that vision, like if you, if that fire is just kind of gone out in your heart, like I'm good, like I'm doing my thing, like I go to church and I read the Bible and I know Jesus, and you've just lost that passion for that, this is kind of what our small groups is about. We want the small groups that you're in to be places where the people that you're praying for to come to know Jesus can make a first introduction to church and the people of God. Like start inviting your neighbors and friends. Yeah, it might be weird, it's okay. Matt's gonna teach everybody how to do this stuff well. Like it's fine. But they get dinner out of it for some of them, right? I don't know. But, but let's, let's pray that the fire in our hearts to tell people about Jesus is rekindled. Or else, what are we doing? Like, we can do our own personal stuff at home. Let's come together and be equipped and empowered to change our communities, to be reconcilers and peacemakers, and to be the feet of good news.